0: We're back together again, a Thursday edition of Locked on NBA. Thanks to Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko for the remarkable interview with Sean Marion. in last year's slot today, they have Ala on rejecting the screen. That show got a lot of pub last week as they had the Adam Morrison story as well with Kobe Bryant in the soccer jersey. So Noah and Adam continue to do an amazing job on rejecting the screen. So make sure you grab that. And Ben Goliver joins me now. Ben, I got to tell you, the irony of all of this I'm talking with my locked on podcast network partner Carl Weinstein today and some others and I was like I am so far behind on my podcast listening. It's like I thought I would have all this time and I can't, like I can't the amount of great content that's coming out right now I can't even keep up.
1: Or oh, is it? Is it because you don't have the commute? Do you do a lot of listening like to and from the arenas or is it on the airplanes or or what's the change? Are you just spending too much time with your kids? Is that the problem? <laughs> maybe,
0: maybe there's actually some quality time with the kids. Um, maybe it's running a podcast network uh, when many of the leagues are not playing. Uh, I also think that listening habits are different, so I think you're right on that. I also think there's just an in for a tip of the hat, To everyone involved, I just think there's an inordinate amount of incredible content. Chad Ford's uh, NBA Big Board show with Bill Simmons was amazing. Bill Simmons' rewatchable draft show with Zach Lowe was is is on the top of my list. I haven't got to it yet. Some of the stuff you you've been doing a ton. Like I just to the credit of everybody out there. In sometimes I think these environments actually make everyone a little better.
1: Well, there's that whole like, you know, corny marketing slogan, basketball never stops. And that one really got put to the test here over the last <laughs> month. But I think that there's a lot of people who invest a lot of their time in this game that just have nothing else going on. And I'm you know, guilty as charged, you know, like I don't really have a lot else. So I'm glad to talk basketball all day, every day. I do want to say uh, Chad Ford's podcast has been awesome, man. I mean, every single episode has been a 10 out of 10 for me. It's so great to hear him back. On the air, breaking the draft stuff down. And so um, that's been like one of the best things to happen during this quarantine period for my life. Anyways, I know for my podcast listening, I'm doing less of the news listening because I think I'm I'm following news more closely on Twitter. And I'm digging more into the fun stuff, uh, you know, the sports podcast and, and, and some of that um, or even a Tiger King podcast here and there. Uh, with with my own listening. So maybe my habits have changed a little bit too.
0: All right, let's get uh, into it. You have have been on The Last Dance from what I hear. It starts Sunday, 10-part documentary series we've all been waiting for about Michael Jeffrey Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, and you've seen it.
1: I have, and just for your listeners who are Utah-based, I do want to just give them sort of the good news. This is not just 10 straight hours of watching the 1998 finals unfold like in heartbreaking fashion. Uh, There's more than just that one, you know, series and the epic shot and the Brian Russell shove and all that stuff uh, being covered here. You know, it really is kind of two documentaries in one. It's the story of that 1997-98 Bulls team as a whole and all the drama they were going through with Phil Jackson's contract issues and Scottie Pippen's holdout and, uh, you know, his, his trade request and Dennis Rodman, you know, just his typical drama. So it's, it's that story, but it's also the very typical kind of biography story of Michael Jordan himself. And it kind of just time shifts back and forth in each episode. So you get a little bit from column a, you get a little bit from column B and they go really deep into Jordan's backstory. So for people like me who kind of grew up in, you know, in in the thirties, uh, now, Who remember kind of growing up on Jordan? There's a lot of material covered that's going to be familiar, but they do a nice job of going a little bit uh, deeper on each topic. You know, all the way from his childhood to the getting cut from the high school team, of course, the the game winning shot at North Carolina, a title winning shot there, uh, and and all through his pro career as well. Uh, But the inside stuff, you know, the behind the scenes stuff from that '97-'98 season is very very interesting, and it's kind of timeless because. You could imagine camera crews falling around the LeBron James uh, or falling around those Golden State Warriors teams from, you know, three or four years ago when they're kind of at the center of the NBA's media landscape. And you can just imagine how all those little stories could kind of get blown out uh, into bigger deals. And, and it's a team that, frankly, uh, you know, had the opportunity to kind of self-compose or, or had the opportunity to be pulled apart by some of the drama. Uh, and obviously they wound up winning the title and, and Jordan kind of pulled them through everything. But to me, it was just a fascinating watch, a very educational watch, comprehensive. And I think there's a little dirt in there, too. You know, Michael uh, is not afraid to talk trash. He was interviewed three times for the documentary at length, uh, and he pretty much has, you know, pretty harsh words for, uh, you know, all of his old rivals, Isaiah Thomas in particular, uh, you know, Clyde Drexler, uh, he he was a, a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, kind of, uh, I guess the the word would be a jocular towards in terms of feeling like he shouldn't have been compared to Drexler at times. So, you know, again, it, you get a taste of Michael uh, and a taste of his team
0: too. I, well, I don't want to, uh, if we have time, I'll get to, you know, my all-time favorite kind of NBA inside story I have with Jordan in this kind of incredible, insane competitiveness that he just had at all times. Did, was that clearly defined in this?
1: Oh, 100%. I mean, there's one point where he's, he's interviewed and he's asked about why is he such a t- uh, tough teammate. Does he realize that, you know, doing things like punching Steve Kerr and, uh, you know, berating his teammates. And at one point he told the entire Chicago Bulls team never to pass the ball to Bill Cartwright in the fourth quarter because he just didn't trust them. You know, this was just like an open thing where like the whole team had a policy about that. Um, and he's, he's confronted all in this stuff. And he starts to lay out his philosophy about basketball and leadership and how he just felt the burden and the responsibility of pulling his teammates and bringing them to his level. And he only knew how uh, one way to play and one way to act. And he's pouring his heart out on this particular subject. You know, I'm sure he's talked about it hundreds of times. And he gets so into it that he actually has to stop the interview because he's basically about to tear up and cry. Um, And so I think that's just one example of like how much all this stuff means to him and how competitive he was, but uh, there's some really interesting tricks with the movie or with the documentary, I should say, like for example, the director, Jason Hare does an interview with Gary Payton where Gary Payton says, Hey, in the 1996 finals uh, with the Sonics and bulls, if George Carl had led Gary Payton guard, Michael Jordan earlier in the series, the Sonics would have, uh, you know, fared better. And they maybe even could have won the series. And they actually show Michael Jordan, a clip of Gary Payton saying that, Uh, on the iPad and then they film his reaction and Jordan just starts cracking up, laughing. He can't suppress it any longer. And he just kind of dismissively calls Gary Payton, the glove. And he's like, Oh, the glove couldn't work. And I I, I was never worried about the glove. The glove couldn't guard me. And so you get just sort of this, uh, this modern day realization that the competitive fire is still there. I mean, this guy would, you know, gladly talk trash with Gary Payton today. Uh, You know, the fire is still burning here you know, 20-something years after this documentary was actually originally filmed, you know, the '98
0: season. It's pretty incredible. Uh, that It still holds that. I mean, I, so I'm almost 50. I, like, bought a house in some ways so that I could get a satellite dish so I could go to G.722 <laughs> G. and get WGN and watch Jordan in 1993 or 4, like that like legitimately was part of the thought process. Like I was that addicted to watching Jordan when I started in the business.
1: That's incredible. So I I was a little bit younger, but I just remember like the opportunity to get to watch Jordan. It might've been like, you know, the weekend game on uh, probably NBC at that point, or obviously the NBA finals. And I just remember like looking forward to those games for, you know, weeks, if not months, and then you just kind of always knew or assumed that the Bulls were going to be there because Jordan was going to have them there uh, one way or the other. And I think that that's an interesting part about the behind-the-scenes aspect of this documentary is it really dispels this idea that they were sort of preordained to win all six of those titles. Now, obviously, some of those titles were a little bit uh, easier than others. I mean, when you win 72 games in a season, everybody's healthy. You're you're expected to romp through the playoffs, no question about it, right? But especially that last year in 98, I mean, they were being pulled apart at the seams in large part because Jerry Krause, the GM at the time, had his eye towards rebuilding. He was concerned that they weren't going to be able to afford to keep uh, Scottie Pippen. He was concerned that some of the other veterans on the team were going to sort of fall off a cliff. Uh, He was concerned that Phil Jackson wanted too much power and wanted too much money. And so there was major, major rifts between the GM and the coach, the GM and the star player. Uh, the GM, and, and Scottie Pippen, the number two guy, uh, and, and pretty much everybody else down the line. And uh, so there was a lot of baggage going on during that season. And it, it almost reminds me of, like, some of those Cavaliers teams where you just hear all the reports coming out of Cleveland, like everybody's miserable, right? Like there's questions about LeBron and Kyrie and David Blatt and everything else. Uh, you get a little bit of that, uh, you know, distraction going on during that 98 season as well. So, again, even if you're not a fan of Jordan or not a fan of the Bulls, If you just like basketball and just sort of the NBA as a whole, it's a great picture kind of behind the curtains of what it's like at the highest levels.
0: He's Ben Goliver, Washington Post, national NBA writer. I'm David Locke. I'm just a guy. Uh, And we are going to talk some more about it. I have three. uh, I have the most important question. I have two stories from that season that I specifically remember. Uh, that I was going to actually I have three stories, one of which I'm certain is not in there, two, which I think might be. So I'm going to ask you about those. We'll, we'll do all that when we uh, continue here. Chad Ford, we mentioned it earlier. NBA Big Board uh, is the podcast. Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. So make sure you go grab that. Subscribe to it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and follow it on Spotify with everything that's going on out there. You might not want to go out to get your stuff. It's time to have it come to you. Well, Postmates is here for you with an incredible deal. Postmates can do it all for you. Burger in the middle of the day, light night food run. Grab meal wherever you need it from where whoever you want it, and also that's usually a local company right now that you can really help out. Heck, it can be a bo- morning breakfast burrito or a 12 pack of beer. Go to Postmates and we'll give you hundred dollars of free delivery for your first seven days. Start your free delivery. Download the app and use Locked On. NBA. That's code LOCKED ON NBA for $100 of free delivery with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. So I have a few memories of Jordan in that season because I covered the Jazz and then covered those finals. Um, one of which is the, the shot. Actually, this might even be this year before, uh, unless it's game one. Now I'm getting confused. The, the, the single game-winning shot of game one, and afterwards in the post-game, I still have this sound, but I probably should open, brought it out for today. He explains his... So this is actually from the 97 finals. He explains the pull-up jumper to win it in game one of the 97 finals, and he explains it, and it takes him like, three minutes in the post-game press conference (laughs) to share everything that he took in in, like, nine seconds. It was incredible.
1: So it's like one of those LeBron things where he starts to go to the galaxy brain and he's doing the photographic memory thing where he's breaking down every single thing, like, just scene by scene. I mean, yeah, you should play that. Why are you letting a a guy like me break this down? Just let MJ do it himself.
0: But I mean, so, I mean, because what he, I mean, he would talk, he talked about, well, in the previous play, they were placed there and there, uh, totally like LeBron. Uh, You know, and so I saw this and they came over and I knew if they didn't move, then that guy, then, you know, like, I mean, it was incredible the amount of information that he was taking in to understand what he was seeing uh, and and the decision that he was making uh, to win the ballgame. I mean, there's a there's a genius inside of the brilliance.
1: Oh no question. I mean, the the mental aspect and the mastery aspect definitely comes through in the documentary at different times. I mean, there was a moment in the '93 finals where the the Suns are starting to get a little bit of life, and Jordan just decides, you know, what this series is over, and and he just goes off. I think he had 55 points in Game Four of that series. Uh, there's that also in the '91 finals where they come out of the Eastern Conference Finals after beating the Pistons, and they're basically celebrating that series victory because of the previous losses to the bad boy Pistons, like it was a championship in and of itself. And they drop game one uh, to the Lakers. And it's like, Oh no, all these questions come back about, you know, can Michael win the big one? He's never done it in the pros and, and so on. And then he, he goes on to make like 13 straight shots or something like that in game two has a spectacular move layup and they win the series in five games. Right. I mean, he just had that ability uh, to flip the switch to an even uh, you know higher level than anybody else could get to at opportune moments, and a lot of it came from frankly his understanding of personnel uh tendencies and his his own ability to uh you know exploit certain situations and get to his spots i mean uh, he was the total package uh, from a an offensive standpoint, not just the physical skills uh, but the mental side as well
0: when you look at the ninety eight finals, the shot to close to finish the final shot probably should have been the final shot of his career in some people's mind, is is everything, right? But what had to happen for that shot to take place, I don't think is talked about enough. So if you walk through it, Stockton hits a three, Jordan goes to the line, Stockton hits a three, and the Jazz go up 86-83. Scottie Pippen, if I remember correctly, is in the locker room having his back worked on. He's, like, not going to be able to go in Game 7. Like, and the Jazz have Game 7 at the Delta Center coming up. Like, the Jazz win this game, and when Stockton hits that shot and goes up three with 41 seconds left, like, the thought is the Jazz just won the series. Because Pippen's not all right, the Bulls are worn out, and the Jazz have home court for Game 7. They come out of the timeout, and they score in four seconds. That's actually like the most untalked about play. And certainly my having been on the jazz broadcast staff at the time, probably remember that a little bit more vividly. And maybe the fact that I was a childhood jazz fan as well. Probably remember that a little bit more vividly than anyone. Okay. That hurts a little bit. All right. So, all right. I'm okay. So
1: on that one, doesn't he go coast to coast? Like just kind of weave through everybody in four seconds.
0: Because in that day and age, too many people still believe the dumbest adage of all basketball. You don't want to foul him and have him score when the clock's not moving. (laughs) Why not? clock doesn't like run an extra six seconds if they score without fouling anyway so the jazz have the ball 37 seconds left they go into the post to malone jeff hornacek i'm I'm doing this off pure memory so i hope i'm right jeff hornacek runs a baseline cut off the entry pass into malone because in that day and age there's so much double team you got to clear him out right So he he runs the baseline cut. He's done that. I mean, let's just think about it. The Bulls and the Jazz have played. This is their 16th game they've played in two years. How many times do you think in 16 games Jeff Hornacek has made that entry pass and made that cut by Karl Malone?
1: Probably 200. Right. You know, a lot.
0: Right. (laughs) Malone's got the ball in the post. Up one, eight, six seconds on the shot clock. And Jordan turns around, stops following Hornacek, and comes around and gets the steal. Like, that's the play.
1: No question. Rob's him blind and clean, too. You know, I mean, he takes a hard swipe at it from Malone's blind side, gets all ball, and Malone goes to the court, kind of just stunned. Uh, no foul call. And um, then he brings it up the other way and knows exactly what he's going to do. It's it's a great point because people do focus on the shot, but it was the two end effort. And also it was the mental resolve that we were talking about earlier in terms of when you're down three in the last minute, some guys check out or some guys get discouraged. And Jordan went completely into kill mode with the layup and the steal and then the shot. I mean, uh, he was never phased by the pressure, by the road crowd by basically everything. And I actually went back and watched that sequence recently. What's amazing is after he gets to steal from Malone, he's dribbling the ball up the court. There's just dread sets in from the entire arena. And there's like two Bulls fans sitting on the sideline and they're like standing up and cheering before he's even gone into isolation against Russell, because they're so confident that he's going to deliver the game on that possession, right? Like they've already celebrated the title before it's happened. Well, there's, you know, 15,000, 18,000 fans. Uh, everybody else is just, like, getting ready to be like, oh, my God, what's Michael Jordan about to do? It reminds me a little bit. Do you remember that viral video that was going around? Wasn't it Kevin Durant up in Toronto who hit a game winner and they were, like, screaming, not this guy, not this guy, and he hits it? Uh, you know, that was sort of like the the collective mentality of the uh, uh, of the, the Utah fan base as he's kind of going into his situation. And sure enough, he got exactly to the spot that he wanted Uh, You know, the love tap to Russell's butt, uh, and he drained the shot. And even as he's coming off the court, you mentioned the exhaustion factor. You can see it when you watch that highlight back. Like, Jordan's not in a real celebratory mood when he hits that shot. He's just, like, trying to get to the bench. You know, it's not quite, like, flu game-level exhaustion, uh, but he's tired. Uh, He is is spent. You know, he's put it all out there. There, There's no question. Uh,
0: I asked him post-game press conference – when was the first time you ran that cut defensively and thought about going back for the steal? And he said mm. it was sometime the year before.
1: <laughs> Saved it in his back pocket for 13 months.
0: <laughs> like, is that like, if that's true, that's crazy.
1: Isn't that? I cr- believe it. I mean, it, it, it goes back to the tendency stuff. And I think that in that situation, was Malone really going to pass or was Malone going to try to you know, put the, put the team on his shoulders like I think people had expected Malone to do all the way? Because like you were saying, I mean, Utah could kind of taste victory in that moment, right? Or this was clearly their opportunity. And if you're Malone and you've won the MVP award and you've heard it all about how the mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays and you're looking for your crowning achievement, the last thing you want to do in that situation is pass out of it, right? Uh, it's just a natural human instinct. I think for a superstar guy to, to want to, you know, take advantage of the moment. And I'm sure that was factoring into Jordan's decision to gamble is he didn't think the ball was going to get rotated to Hornacek and he was going to get burned for it. You know,
0: I just looked something up. I want to correct myself. One of my memories from 30 years ago whatever it is, is not accurate. Pippen had re-entered the game. So Pippen had come back. He didn't do anything in the final five minutes. He didn't notch a, Rebound, a point, or an assist in the final five minutes of the game. But he was on the floor. But his back had, had become a major uh, problem. He had left the in the second half of that game. He had checked out and gone back to the locker room. Uh, but he did come back and play the final five minutes. So I apologize. I'm so bummed. I've thought that for 30 years. And I just found out it's not true. I don't know what to do about it. Uh, <laughs> there is a really unique product out there called Blinkist. Uh, It works on your phone, your tablet, your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways on the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them into just 15 minutes so you can read or listen. Successful people like business leaders are well-known for reading lots of books. Blinkist makes the busiest people like you who want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start your information right away. And with the audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute on lunch break or while you exercise 12 million people using Blinkist. You can as well, whether it's upheaval by Jared diamond, whether it's the sports gene by David Epstein whether it's Tim Ferriss' four-hour work week or Jeff Benedict's book about Tiger Woods, you can do it all. So go to Blinkist.com NBA, get a free seven-day trial, and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, blinkis dot NBA to start your seven-day trial. So uh, here's the most single important question. Is it good? Is the documentary good?
1: I loved it. Yeah, I, I really liked it. I mean, I, I think I'm predisposed to liking it. Uh, but I also kind of went in there with a critical eye because I've read a bunch of Jordan books. I've watched all the DVDs from his title runs. And so the the big question for me was, you know, am I going to learn anything or is this going to be just sort of, you know, a nostalgic, you know, trip down memory lane? But I think what really sealed it for me was Jordan's candor in his interviews. Um, everything was on the conditions in terms of the interviews. And you've got to remember... This is not an ESPN-led effort, okay? Jordan had and his people basically had access to this behind-the-scenes footage. They were the ones that went out and hired the director. They were the ones who decided to make it a long-form documentary, and then they kind of went to ESPN towards the end of that process for the distribution, right? So um, it's a situation where his fingerprints are all over it, and he had to be a willing participant, and he had to buy in. But I think to his credit, they didn't make it a puff piece. I mean, within the first 15 minutes, of the first episode, you're going to hear Jordan kind of trashing Jerry Krause to his face after a practice and and making fun of his weight and making fun of his height. And so that gives you a sense for, you know, they're trying to show kind of the the rough edges too. And and what I liked about the candor side is he talked about the Republicans buy sneakers too uh, comment. He talked about his father's death. He talked about the gambling allegations. And was there any link between that uh, and his father's death? He talked about the racism that he felt an experience when he was growing up in North Carolina. He talked in depth about the rivalries, especially the Isaiah Thomas, which is, you know, still very kind of bitter for him all of these years later. And it's pretty much any question that you would ever want to ask Michael Jordan in a sit down interview is asked and he's, and he answers them very directly. And to me, that's kind of what stood out about it because he doesn't do a ton of media. And you know, he did that one big ESPN.com profile piece, A couple of years ago, but he hardly ever does the long form sit down interviews anymore. And so this is really his opportunity to kind of set the record straight uh, and get his side of the story out in full. And so to me, I I think that that alone, even if you didn't have all the other behind the scenes footage, uh, would make it a worthwhile project. And to me, I think it's going to be a huge hit for ESPN, in part because there's nothing really else going on. Right. I mean, they, they have a really big stage here. I think that their their rollout plan of doing it on Sunday nights makes a lot of sense. You're going to have a captive audience, uh, and I think there's going to be a lot of scenes that have a lot of social media buzz to them too, just because Jordan is so direct in his comments and uh, you know he's not shying away from controversy. All
0: right, let's hit a few news items before we wrap up the show. Uh, the mayor of L- Los Angeles said he doesn't expect sporting events with crowds or concerts in t- until 2021. What's your thought on that?
1: I think it makes sense. Right. I mean, even the NBA in their best case, most optimistic scenario is saying, look, we want to bring it back with a bubble. Right. I mean, that seems to be this idea of like, you know, strip the playoffs down, hold it in a single site location and don't have fans. So I think that kind of all lines up. I mean, it is a bit of a daunting proposition now that they're pushing things out all the way seven or eight months from now. But the scientists seem to say that this could be something that could last for a long time in terms of having people in some level of quarantine or isolation And certainly, you know, 18,000 people at Staples Center doesn't really fit that criteria. So, you know, it is uh, the kind of thing that's shocking, but not surprising, if that makes sense, right? Like you hear 2021, you think, man, that's a long way off. But at the same time, you think about the logistics of, well, would you want to go to an arena in in six months? And, you know, I think the answer for a lot of people would be no, they just wouldn't be comfortable. It wouldn't be smart. And they would be exposing themselves to, you know, a higher level of risk. So, you know, I I appreciate uh, honest statements like that from leadership. I think that's important as we all kind of grapple with this thing.
0: I find it a little stunning in the sense that it means that the start of the next NBA season, whenever it is, is not right. And it also leads me to wonder what the NFL thinks they're doing, because the NFL has been really insistent that they think they're playing in front of fans.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds good in theory, right? And I, I don't know how they would do that, frankly. I don't know how you would do it safely. And that's the thing. I would really hope that these leagues, these leagues and also governmental leaders would not compromise the safety of fans. It would kind of protect the public from themselves when it comes to this stuff. And, you know, we're already starting to see some colleges saying, look, we don't want to have basketball seasons or, or football seasons unless the students are on campus and, you know, we'll see which colleges want to open up first. But, You know, if I was a college university president, I would be thinking all of the fall semester is probably going to be, uh, you know, by Zoom and and Skype and everything else. At this point, uh, I'm just not sure that we're going to progress through this thing fast enough to make that a safe reality.
0: When does it become that those that we are protecting from the disease are responsible to not attend events that could put them in danger? rather than the society shutting down to protect them?
1: Well, that one might be above my pay grade, Locke. I mean, that might be for a philosophy professor or an epidemiologist. I would just hope that everyone would be fully educated as well as possible and would understand the risk factors and that there would be clear communication from the government, you know, every stage of the way, you know, kind of with two-week type updates as we go forward here for the next eight months to get a sense of, you know, when it's going to be safe. I mean, to me, I think one clear indicator for sporting events would be like, is it safe to go to a restaurant? Like have uh, non-essential businesses been reopened? How are some, are people going back to work more often? Like, is there going to be a success factor in kind of the reopening stage? I mean, to me, I think that sporting events should be, you know, and, and this is working against my own self-interest because obviously I want to go to a sporting event as soon as possible. And I want to have fans back in the building as soon as it's safe. That should be one of the last things to get that gets reopened because of the potential for mass spread, right? It's just a lot of people in a small place and, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, shared restroom facilities and shared seats. And it's very different, uh, difficult to socially distance in those environments. And to me, it's like, you need to have some track record of success at other aspects of society before you start to open the doors for fans going back to sporting events.
0: It's interesting. I mean, the president seems to have put sports on the top of the list, right? Maybe it's without fans, but the president really seems to have placed the return of sport as something that is an indicator that all is well.
1: Well, look, I mean, I miss it as much as everybody. And I think that's part of the deal too, is that, you know, people are looking for comfort factors. People are looking for things to do. Uh, Some people are looking for things to gamble on. Uh, People want to, you know, sports plays a huge role in our society. But I I think that this is a case where what we want, um, you know, may not line up with what's prudent, you know, and that happens a lot in life. And it's always a bummer when it does. But I don't I don't see any shortcuts here personally. And I don't think I'm like going way out on the limb here by saying that I I think that uh, the NBA and their leaders, too, I assume will be taking a very prudent and cautious approach to this, because let's keep in mind if you do rush it back and fans get sick, you're going to have to shut everything down again, probably. And then now you're, you're setting yourself back to square one. I mean, you, you want people to feel comfortable going to an arena season tickets are expensive. You know, I think a lot of people uh, who are are listening to this probably know that well firsthand, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, depending on where you're sitting. uh, And that adds up pretty quickly. Right. Um, That's a real commitment. You have to be, you have to feel very comfortable with the team Uh, with the building, with the staff, with the security, with the safety factor, all that stuff before you're going to make that type of financial commitment. And, um, you know, I think that some of these polls that have come out of fans recently show that people just aren't there right now. You know, they're they're not comfortable uh, with the notion of attending games in person. And I think that that's going to be a factor here in how this thing gets rolled out. You're going to really have to win back the public's trust on this stuff. And uh, I think there's work to be done on that
0: front. Pretty fascinating. There was a 10-page document that got leaked out today uh, out of the White House on the mitigation plans on how they plan to reopen the country. And what was so interesting to me about reading that today was, one, how often it talked about kind of switching between mitigation plans so that we, you open it up, but then the tests, then the cases increase, and then you shut back down. Like, that they really believe that that's where we're going to be, like, jostling between, which gets really interesting from a sports standpoint of, like, oh, it's open. No, it's not. It's open. No, it's not. Like, how do you do that? The other one was the last item they had on the list of importance of opening was colleges and universities, which puts college football (laughs) in a really interesting situation. And then the third one that was most interesting was for school. They talked about the idea that you might go to school for three weeks and then... You'd actually have a community wide shutdown for a week where everybody goes and quarantines again. Like, I don't quite understand why, but that was one of the things that they talked about was this idea that you would like go to school for three weeks and then you would stop and then do all your, you know, social distance learning again for a period of time and then go back to school again.
1: Well, I imagine they're trying to spread out when the infections are happening while still having some level of normalcy kind of creep back in. But I think the thing with the college and universities is, is sort of what I was saying with the sporting events. I mean, that's how it should be because those are high risk uh, venues and um, you're asking for major trouble. I mean, if one person gets it in a dorm room, that thing is going to take down a lot of kids, right? And and with the professors and the class sizes and everything else, I mean, that that should be uh, something that gets sort of protected a uh, little bit extra. And I hope that sporting events are, are treated the same way. I mean, I, you know, I, we've seen, even just from the evolution of Adam Silver's comments over the last month, uh, kind of a gradual realization about how bad this this situation really could be for the league in terms of, you know, initially he was hoping for a one-month delay, then it was talking about a three-month delay. Now there's, you know, if they can't do the bubble thing then you know, the season could have to be scrapped and and that could mean, you know, basically five months without basketball or whatever. Um, You know, I think the timeline is getting longer and longer for fact-based reasons, right? It's it's not because anybody wants it that way. It's because the virus sets the timeline and you have to, you know, work in however you can around the edges. But I don't see any scenario where opening an arena for a couple weeks and then closing it back down and now you can actually buy tickets and now you can't. Uh, I'm not sure fans are going for that, man. You know, I I think that people are going to be real skeptical about, you know, is this a safe thing to do? And we saw some ticket numbers or uh, attendance numbers rather drop a little bit in the days before the NBA shut down. Fans were just saying, you know, they were kind of self-selecting and saying, I'm not going to these games. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if if similar decisions are made uh, once, you know, arenas are open, especially if if they're opened in kind of a gradual or or, um, staggered manner.
0: Final thought. I thought the mayor's comment today actually bought the NBA time. The L.A. mayor's comment today, if we really don't believe there's any fans in a stadium, then I think the NBA can start their Vegas bubble season to close this year later than they would otherwise because that quote leads me to believe there's no chance you're starting the NBA season for the next year until December. Because I think the goal would be, from I think I'm making this up, but I would think that the goal would be that if you're when you start the 2021 season, you're back to some level of playing in front of fans, right? You're fine finishing this year without fans, but you'd like to start the year with fans the next time, you know, for the next season, so that if the mayor- you, you
1: would you would like you would like to for sure. But I've actually heard a couple of team executives tell me that they are prepared for the possibility that next season would have to open without fans in their buildings and that they may not actually be playing in their full arenas because if there's no fans, are you going to need to they need to have the whole arena? So I think there's there's some level of, of realistic or I guess people just kind of rationalizing the situation and, and understanding like, you know, there's just because you want to start next season fresh doesn't mean you're going to be able to, um, especially with fans in the building. So, um, you know, there, there could be, uh, I guess, to build on what you're saying, there could be motivation to start the following year later, right? To delay the start right. of 2021 like, yeah, that's, so that's you could actually point. have fans in the building.
0: Yeah, that's exactly my point. That right. That I think that actually a little bit of what happened there, to, if that's in fact, you know, if we believe what the mayor of L.A. said, I think that allows the NBA to wait until July to start their Vegas bubble.
1: Well, they've got nothing but time right now, right. right? And I think that they're going to need to see how things play, uh, play out, see if the curve does flatten, see if some of the fear factor wears off a little bit, see if the death rates come down, and, and you can make a better decision, a more informed decision down the road. It does seem to me like they're in, in buying time mode right now, personally, and I think that's the right way to play this. There should be no rush. I understand there's some in the government who want to rush, but I don't get it. You know, why? Why would you try to accelerate this thing? Or try to force it. It really makes no sense to
0: me. The other one that's so interesting depends where you live right now of how you feel, right? Like, I happen to live in the state that has the it's the only state that has top 10 tests and bottom 10 deaths. Mm. Right? So, like, I'm watching this thing feel like it's being fairly well-maintained. You're in L.A. where yesterday they had the largest death total they've ever had, right? You know, so, it, I, you know, everyone's got a different feeling kind of, I think, a little bit of where they are in our country, which is the uniqueness to who we are. So... For sure. And
1: actually, in my neighborhood, it's been very minimal as far as I can tell. I mean, I'm not hearing the sirens. There's been pretty low case counts for right around me. So I think even within a large metropolis, uh, you know, I could honestly, I feel like I'm in a little bit of a safety bubble right now. And, um, you know, it it absolutely matters. Basically, your zip code or your neighborhood or your block. I mean, it can kind of vary uh, neighborhood by neighborhood for this thing. And ultimately, like the NBA, if they want to start up normal, they need all 30 markets, right, to be in a comfortable spot and you're not, you're not judging it by your best markets. You're judging it by your worst markets, right? So it's like, if New York is still in the middle of this thing and you know, you can't bring people into Madison square garden or Barclays center. um, It's going to be hard to conduct season kind of working around that. If you do want fans in the building
0: he's ben goliver read him in the washington post i'm david Locke. thanks very much for tuning in the last dance is sunday you can watch that rejecting the screen had a bunch of great shows this week so right now why don't you tell your smart device to listen to the podcast rejecting the screen